This is NER Out Loud, the official podcast of the New England Review. This podcast animates stories and poems through vocal performances, celebrating the artistic exchange between text and voice. I'm Megan Job, host of our third episode, which brings you a poem by Heather Crystal and a story by Janet Toll. Both pieces were published in NER in 2018. Today, they'll be read by members of Oratory Now, a center for training and research in oral expression at Middlebury College. These two works use form and language to illustrate the contemporary condition. Interruption, cross-pollination, frustration, and maybe even a little rage. No need to pin them down too much, though. Listen in, as each piece reveals itself word by word. First up is a poem, In Order of Appearance, by Heather Crystal, read by Melanie Rivera. The swimming hole abuts the swimming mountain, she said, and I believed her until I began to think about it. But I hated to see the mountain disappear, so instead I thought about weasels. Handbags. The future. People I hate because they are performatively tickled when it's time to say vagina. I thought about flashlights versus torches. What it is to carry a torch for someone. How it could merely be a kind act with a curiously symbolic narrative description, how ideally one's life would be composed entirely of such acts, composed, I guess, by gods. And I thought of the cowardice of certain of my cells and fire. I thought of fire scorching the hillside and meanwhile the mountain stood just beyond my interior peripheral vision. I ached to preserve it and thus thought of instructions I failed to absorb due to my inability to invest myself in many aspects of life on Earth. Bridge is a nightmare, and on occasion has caused me to behave very poorly. I thought of Jimmy Stewart as the man who knew too much and regretted it immediately, as he was followed by Doris Day singing K Sera Sera to her truly terrible son. Thought, how is it I can hate a seven-year-old? It is astounding I can hate so many people, those who greet each other at volumes exceeding their actual degree of enthusiasm. I thought of slapping their big, friendly faces with whatever was at hand. A lake trout, or my hands themselves, those most constant of weapons. I thought of the gradual increase in the cost of stamps and payphones, and of course, the gradual disappearance of the payphone, several payphones in particular. I thought of one poet's criticism of the word particularly, and another's dismissal of those who laugh at Shakespeare's plays, and I thought, to them, I am just as despicable as those I enjoy hating. And so I turned against said poets, turned and accidentally caught a glimpse of the mountain. Disaster. It was disappearing. I had to stop. I had to turn around and think of how I would love to milk a cow, but not to drink the milk. How there are so many opportunities for me to calm myself and concentrate on small repetitive acts so that even if the mountain has vanished completely, I will not know it. I will not sense its loss. My mind will be elsewhere, browsing the produce, rearranging in order of sweetness the just-arrived fruit. 
was In Order of Appearance, a poem by Heather Crystal. Heather Crystal is the author of four poetry collections, The Difficult Farm, The Trees to Trees, which won the Believer Poetry Award, What is Amazing, and Heliopause. She has taught at Emory University, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Sarah Lawrence College, and she lives in Yellow Springs, Ohio. In Order of Appearance was originally published in the New England Review in summer 2018. It was read by Melanie Rivera. Melanie is one of the original coaches of Middlebury's Oratory Now program and a co-leader of the Anderson Freeman Center's Queer and Trans People of Color Initiative. Raised in Spanish Harlem, she has written and performed spoken word poetry for over six years. At Middlebury, she is a senior German major with an English and linguistics double minor. Next up is Modal Window, a short story by Janet Toll. While the print version of the story is much longer than what we present here, this excerpt, read by two alternating voices, will give you a strong sense of what Toll is up to, while also whetting your appetite to read the story in full. It's read here by Becca Berlind and Sam Tompkins-Martin. This is a modal window. This modal can be closed by pressing the escape key or activating the close button. Close modal dialogue. This is a modal window. People.com. This is a modal window. At the cabin, Grandma Macaulay stood waiting in the foyer with a festive apron and hot toddy fixings close at hand and the adults had no compunctions about letting the cousins play tag in the dark beneath the stars. Liza, almost three, rode on her Uncle Paul's shoulders as he told her about the constellations. That one. That's the celestial hot tub. There's the St. Bernard. There's the giant coffee mug next to the cosmic mini-fridge. And that's the Golden Gate Bridge. No, Liza said, giggling, hanging on tight as she'd been told. No, it's not. Uncle Paul was broke. He had been broke many times over the course of the last sixteen years, and he had never asked his parents for help. He was an accountant, and so his financial circumstances might have made him the butt of some of the family jokes if he hadn't been in debt because he was gay, because he had fallen in love with someone who loved him even more deeply, because his partner had died after several long stints in the hospital, several ambulance rides, more than a few surgeries. Uncle Paul never used to come to Thanksgiving at the cabin in the mountains because his husband had never been invited, but look, the tide has turned. The Macaulays usually go to Stanford and usually pass the bar, and if they don't, you better believe it's a choice. The Macaulays own property in Palo Alto and San Francisco and Big Sur and up near Tahoe in the Sierra Nevadas. The Macaulays are prominent, pragmatic Irish Catholic Democrats, and these days the Macaulays are cognizant of the political and social value of a gay son. They'd love to square up Polly's debts. After all, it's been so long. After all, back then it was a different time. After all, it's not like they'll have to see Polly kissing any man over the hickory ham, and so what's the harm of it, really? After all, bygones. Uncle Paul knows his father is waiting in an armchair by the hearth, readying a firm handshake and an earnest laugh and a kindly stern, let's get this straightened out now, shall we? It's been long enough. No, I don't want to hear another word about it. 
And so Uncle Paul is outside with the children. Broke. Press escape or activate the close button. This is a modal window. Eugenia cannot afford to fix or replace her car. Someone stole the catalytic converter from its guts at some point during a slow Sunday night, and although the parking lot in Eugenia's apartment complex features several slick black security cameras, the manager admits to Eugenia that nothing has actually been recorded. So now Eugenia takes two buses to work, and a commute that used to cost her 16 minutes twice a day runs her 52 minutes twice a day, if the drivers are on time. Here's a secret. Eugenia can afford to fix her car, or perhaps even replace it. Her grandmother out in Montana died six months ago, and Eugenia hadn't been expecting anything. She'd never met the woman, after all. But a check has just arrived from the executor. $4,500. Immediately, Eugenia uses 844 to pay off her credit cards and 300 to square up a loan from a friend, and she's reserved another 450 to put toward next month's rent. And she did buy a $15 bottle of Merlot and a little wheel of fancy cheese, $7. But that's it. To waste almost two hours of every workday on a commute too crowded and unsettled even for texting cannot be born, right? But at the same time, Eugenia feels as though the universe itself was the one to steal her catalytic converter and damage the exhaust manifold and surrounding machinery. As if someone, while toting up the columns in a cosmic accounting book, had noticed a discrepancy and moved to correct it with hands of clockwork. And Eugenia refuses. She has drawn a line. No. This windfall does not belong to you. No. Having a secret stockpile makes all of this bearable. Even the way in which two men have groped her through her weary knee-length pencil skirt on crowded mornings. No, she gets to say. No. I refuse. You cannot make me. And so, because one day her first bus is running 12 minutes late, which is just exactly enough to make her miss her second, Eugenia arrives at the dealership where she works as an administrative assistant, a full 61 minutes after she's supposed to. And because of several other factors, including the fact that Eugenia is about to turn 36 and her accent has been thickening with age, among other things, her boss, Stanford Lowry, a.k.a. Stan the Man, whose visage graces thousands of screens in the Tri-County area during off-peak hours, calls her into his glass-walled office and press escape or activate the close button. This is a modal window. In Las Vegas, New Mexico, a heavy snowfall damages three historic buildings, including the only remaining Carnegie Library in the state. It does something to you, sharing a name with a much more famous version of whatever you are, at least in my opinion. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Almost 30% of the population lives below the poverty line, and so of course this is almost completely true. Press escape, or activate the close button. This is a modal window. Have you read the terms and conditions, and do you agree? This is a modal window. You've used up your five free articles for the month, but here's the good news. A year-long subscription is only $19.99. This is a modal window. 
Malik's appendix ruptured in class four days ago, though he didn't know what was happening at the time. He only knew that unlike with other bouts of stomach flu, this time the pain in his abdomen was spidery and somehow ancient, like threads of an old gray wedding dress, pulling taut within the muscles of his stomach and then snapping. The doctor tells Malik the scar will be very small and that the ladies will love it. The doctor is the first white person to touch Malik's bare stomach, at least in his memory. And hopefully the last. Hopefully he'll never get this sick again. Malik's mother tells him that his classmates are making him get well soon cards, that everyone has to make him a card. Malik knows how he feels about all these things, and at the same time, he knows how he's supposed to feel. And this is the first time he realizes that he has come out of sync. A month and a half later, he is walking home alone after school. He is supposed to stay in an after-school program. That is where his mother will be expecting to find him when she gets off work, and this is a thing she takes seriously. But Malik couldn't stay there another minute. Not after the way Ty sprayed him with a whole can of Axe after P.E. while Robbie held him still against the lockers. Not after the gym teacher made him take a shower and let Ty and Robbie get off without even a write-up. Ty was Malik's friend a few months ago. And he gets yelled at three times that day. Once by the after-school program's monitor. Once by his mother upon her arrival at school. And again after they get home. His mother makes dinner louder even than usual, slamming the pot of water onto the burner to heat. Usually Malik would help, but he senses that it's best to sit at the little round table with his head down and pretend to make progress on his homework. Now that I know you won't leave school again, his mother says, glaring over the cutting board as she slices the grains, let's talk about why you did. I wanted to go home, Malik says, drawing a spiral in the margin of his worksheet. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't feel good. Yeah? You feeling any better now? Malik doesn't answer. Does this have anything to do with what happened in P.E.? Malik looks up. Your teacher gave me a call this afternoon, his mother says. Malik can tell by the way she keeps her eyes on her knife that she knows the whole story. He has to look away. His mother sighs. She sets the greens aside and turns down the burner. Baby boy, listen. Press escape or activate the close button. This is a modal window. There is a courtyard in the middle of a campus, a public university, University of blank in blank, home of the blank, and owing to this courtyard's position in relation to two of the most convenient guest parking lots, a freshman dorm, the food court, and several of the largest lecture halls, the benches in this courtyard are always full. Postures make statements. I'm looking at my laptop, my tablet, my phone, or a book. I'm talking to a professor whom I do not trust. I'm talking to a professor whom I want to impress. I'm talking to a classmate whom I do not trust. I'm talking to a classmate whom I want to impress. I'm talking to a financially supportive relative or benefactor on the phone. I'm talking on the phone to someone whom I love and trust more than anyone I've met here so far, and talking to them is such a relief that my whole neck moves when I shake my head, and I gesture with the whole of my free arm, and I laugh with all the air in my chest. Press escape, or activate the close button. 
if you want. No? Leading north from this courtyard, there is a walkway that passes between narrow orange trees with dark spindly trunks winding up to horizontal greenery that forms a kind of ceiling. Conveniently, the bark on these dark little trees is thin, and when scraped by a pocket knife or a house key, displays a bright white mark. Consequently, these are the trees on which relationships get marked. P plus B, J plus O wobbly hearts surrounding the kind of hopes that need to be made explicit and tangible. Why? Which qualities, in participating persons, produce this effect, this desire to commemorate a connection in this way? Which 80s movies, which 90s movies, which movies from the aughts, which books, and which Facebook albums, and which posts to Instagram, and with what ratio of irony to sincerity? I mention this because knowing what lies to the north of the courtyard is significant. It may also be significant to know that one of the freshmen stores small baggies of cocaine beneath one of the bricks in the courtyard, and it may be useful to know that the courtyard features exactly eight concrete benches, and that the concrete benches were installed to replace aging wooden ones, whose structural integrity had been compromised by two decades of graffiti. That's not true, actually. It wasn't the graffiti that compromised the wooden benches, but rather their age, the nature of their nature. The groundskeepers were in agreement. The graffiti was unsightly. Press escape or activate the close button. This is a modal window. You've been inactive for 15 minutes. You'll be signed out unless you re-enter your username and password. This is a modal window. It must be dealt with before you can return to whatever you were trying to do. This is a modal window. Two people sat on the beach. They had just finished smoking a blunt. They had just finished fucking upright in a little cave along the shoreline. One of them wandered south along the shore, collecting sand dollars. Who knew? So perfect, they actually exist. And one of them reclined, even without a towel, even though the sand was damp, and thought about how unsatisfying the interlude had been for her. Even though the sand, which had been her perception, read the perils of beach sex, had never gotten anywhere undesirable. The sex had been quick and almost perfunctory, affectionate but characterized by a coldness of their hands. And recently, when she wasn't wet enough, he'd apply some spit, affectionately but perfunctorily, and carry on. She could have said she wasn't in the mood, and she could have said, Hey, can we slow this down? But she'd tried both a few times, and neither gambit seemed like an adequate long-term solution. What could she say? I don't want to have sex anymore. You're a good person, but I don't think of you that way. You, my partner of six years and counting. You, whose name is also on the lease to our apartment. I haven't been satisfied lately. I haven't been attracted to you lately. Could you ask me before getting into it? Or could you try to warm me up? Or am I supposed to be made warm by your mere presence? Is something wrong with me? Why upon learning that it's hard for me to come did you give up? Or did you forget that I like to feel good too? 
And then she figured he'd ask. Well, why didn't you tell me? Why haven't we been talking about this for six years? How can I fix problems if I don't know about them? How can you sabotage this relationship like that? What good did you think lying to me was going to do? Don't you dare say you haven't been lying to me. It was just after dawn, and the trail through the cliffs had been lined with morning glories. Fog clung to the rocks, but the mist had begun to glow. Press escape! This is a modal window. We see you are using an ad blocker. The quality of our publication depends upon our advertising revenue. Please, if you enjoy our content, consider whitelisting our site. This is a modal window. The close button can be found at the top of the frame. The escape key is elsewhere entirely. That was from Modal Window, a story by Janet Toll. Janet Toll has published her stories in Passages North, The Normal School, 1111, and other journals. She divides her time between Northern California, Southern Arizona, and Portland, Oregon. She's now working on a collection of short stories and a novel. Modal Window was originally published in the New England Review in summer 2018. It was read by Becca Berlind and Sam Tompkins Martin. Becca has been engaged in the arts her whole life and is drawn to storytelling of all kinds. Her most recent performance with the Middlebury Theater Department was in Men on Boats. She is a theater major with a Spanish minor from Burlington, Vermont. Sam has worked as an actor, lighting designer, and stage manager. He's a senior double major in theater and American studies from Richmond, Virginia. Future podcasts may include conversations with the readers and authors, snippets from the recording studio, or audio from the annual NER Out Loud live event, held right here in Middlebury, Vermont. For more poems, stories, and essays, visit the New England Review online. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to help more people find the show. And subscribe. This episode of NER Out Loud was recorded in the WRMC radio station on the Middlebury College campus in Middlebury, Vermont. My name is Megan Jobe. NER Out Loud is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College and Oratory Now. Our readers today were Melanie Rivera, Becca Berlind, and Sam Tompkins Martin, with a poem by Heather Crystal and a story by Janet Toll. Our executive producers are Carolyn Keebler and Dana Yetin. Our sound engineer is Gary Sauvois, and our editor is Tess Weitzner. This episode was directed by Dana Yetin and produced by Juliette Luini and Hannah McKenzie. Our original theme song is by Thomas Wentworth. Special thanks to Noah Sauer and Kylie Winger. 